0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Progress City Radio Hour, this uh, town hall episode where we interview someone involved in Disney history, and I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Michael Crawford. Michael, how are you doing today? I am very well, very excited for our guest today. Yes, a very exciting guest. Michael, who is the guest today? Today we're going to be talking with Mr. Eddie Sato, a
1: former Disney Imagineer, now proprietor of his own Sato Studios. A very creative, very interesting guy with a lot of stories to tell and uh, an interesting outlook on the themed entertainment field. Really wanted to pick his brain on a lot of issues. So really eager to talk to him as super nice guy.
0: Well, let's go ahead and jump into this interview with Eddie Sato.
1: Today, we'd like to welcome the man himself, founder of Sato Studios, Mr. Eddie Sato. Eddie, how are you today?
2: I am terrific. I am just delighted to be here, and I've always enjoyed the Progress City interviews with others, so I'm very proud to be part of your program. So thank you for inviting me.
1: Oh, well, we always love talking to you on and offline, so it's uh, exciting to have you here. Now, you've been very busy during the pandemic. You've done a lot of podcasts. I would encourage everyone listening to go to sadostudios.com to see the full list of your appearances and listen to them all. Each one covers... Different aspects of your career, and there's a lot of fun material there. And oh, we they can try, we try. Check out what you've been up to, which has been a lot.
2: Yeah, well, we try to make it different every time, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about was your your origin story. You have a pretty interesting origin story. You got involved in industry at a very young age, but you got Hollywood in your blood. So I was wondering
2: to start <laughs> off with, you could tell us a little about your Aunt Marilyn. I'm so I'm so thankful you asked that because her story is great. Her her longevity at Disney was longer than mine. I can't tell you exactly how many years, but she she blew me out, you hmm. know, uh, working for the Mouse. And uh, but she started in Hollywood as a costume illustrator at Paramount Pictures. Uh, she worked on films. You remember uh, the Ten Commandments. She had a beautiful watercolor of Yul is as the Pharaoh, and wow. you know, did a lot of those Egyptian uh, costumes and so forth for that film. Uh, and then, as, as she worked for Edith Head, who was quite a impresario in costuming and quite good with her PR, but over the years, you know, Marilyn started designing the costumes as well, and she had a great talent for illustrating fabric. And she could make velvet look like velvet which, with mm. just a touch of a watercolor brush. So uh, as a kid, I would go to her apartment and see her painting, uh, you know, Julie Andrews for Thoroughly Modern Millie or, I mean, just uh, amazing films from sci-fi films. I'm trying to remember some of that. She did one with, I think, Zsa Zsa Gabor uh, to <laughs> James Cagney, where she got a screen credit as the designer for The Man of a Thousand Faces, where he played silent film star Lon Chaney.
1: Sure. Sure. That's, I mean, that's such an epic career to go from, you know, Cecil B. DeMille epic, literally, to uh, wind up working at Disney. And I I know that at Disney, she worked on a couple of iconic things there as well.
2: Well, you know, it's true. It's true. And so, um, and just to round out the story. So my grandfather is, you know, a decorator, sign painter, portrait artist, just an all around artist. And that's kind of where our gifts come from. And uh, of course, she learned under him. And uh, he worked at MGM as a scenic artist for a while. And then he had a a film agency and a few other things and things they were doing. So our family's always been dabbling, dabbling and trying things. So when I was at Disney, Tony Baxter was kind of lamenting the fact that you know the the cast members look too much like they were in uniforms. Where's the theatrical costumes? You know we're in a theme park. How how we, we we've ended up with these big zippers? <laughs> you know that <laughs> right. it looks like a pirate, but there's this big zipper someplace. And so I I could tell that he wanted something more theatrical. And I thought, boy, if Marilyn could only get involved in this, and she had done uniforms for Conrad Hilton for the Havana Ooh. Hilton and the Beverly Hills Hilton here in Beverly Hills. Uh, the Beverly Hilton. And so I thought, boy, you know, she has uniform experience and has film experience. That might be a perfect match. So I suggested her to her and she was very interested. She was just independently consulting. Anyway, uh, it ended up she became the costume designer for Disneyland Paris or Euro Disney and then went on to work at Walt Disney World doing parades and Uh, Spectra Magic and Animal Kingdom costuming and even Spaceship Earth, one of the redos of Spaceship Earth. Uh, She did all the period costumes going right back to her Egyptian roots with, you know, (laughs) the history of communication right there into period costumes. So uh, our family is a bit of a full circle. And I was always very proud to to have my aunt working at the company the same time I was, Auntie Mayor, you know.
1: That's neat. That's a great legacy. And she... uh... So she was there for the uh, famous computer programmer in uh, Spaceship Earth, the uh, iconic
2: the woman in the miniskirt,
1: <laughs> the, the miniskirt. So that was the yes. original.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I saw the watercolor of that. I'm like, wow, Marilyn, you know, we're doing the time periods here. And she was, and she's always done that. But the the neat thing about her is she always looked to the future. She was almost 80 years old, I think, when she retired, but she was the one, and, and I'd helped her figure this out, is she saw me with a Cintiq tablet drawing digitally, not using paper. And she wanted to do that. And a lot of people her age would say, well, I'm not going back to paper. I'm never doing that. You know, I'm not, you know, and uh, she went right into the computer world. She was always about the latest Japanese fashions, what's happening in other parts of the world. So it's just natural that she would be working digitally at Walt Disney World for many years.
1: That's very fun. Well, you know, You grew up immersed in this film culture. And one of the things I always enjoy about talking to you is you have a real love of movies. Uh, It seems your work is always really informed by your love of film history. So I just wonder if you could talk a a little about some of your cinematic influences growing up and how that affected you.
2: Wow. Thank you. Um, Well, of course, Hello, Dolly always comes up in these interviews because it was such an influential film. I, I took a a walking tour, the back lot of Universal as a, not Universal, 20th Century Fox as a uh, boy about 10 years old. And that was truly exciting. And to walk down the New York street of Hello, Dahlia, day or so before they shot, it was a Sunday, and I believe they were going to shoot the following Monday. And the set was, as they say, hot. So it was just being touched up. It was dressed. And we literally, you were walking back in time Uh, and this had a huge impression on me so that film seeing it finished had a big impression and even those impressions and 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 falling in love with the production designer John DeCure uh, after being inside of this this terrific backlot movie set which was kind of like a magic trick as you walk down the street following the cameras dolly movements you would look back and see how fake it was and I I just saw this as a great illusion you know and I wanted to be part of that illusion. So films made me even more than an imagineer in some ways. I wanted to be building worlds that were illusionary worlds. And Hello, Dolly! was that magnificent, biggest set of its day that a 10-year-old could kind of be blown away by. And I told my mom that day, I said, I want to meet the man that designed that set. So that was a big influence. And then later in life, films like Citizen Kane, And Orson Welles and his work, and the idea of using light and shadow to suggest environments that you couldn't necessarily afford to build, or studying Mm. the films of Fritz Lang or silent film directors, because they didn't use title cards, very seldom. And if you look at theme park rides, like the scenes Mark Davis creates, these vignettes in the Pirates of the Caribbean, that you just look at them and know exactly what they're doing. Well, isn't that like a silent film? A silent film is dependent upon you looking at it and communicating without dialogue. And I thought that would be my perfect primer as a theme park designer is to understand the dynamics of storyboarding, storytelling, and then the economy of not depending upon dialogue to tell a story and to do it silently. So those films, you know, like Metropolis and uh, films like that uh, made a big impression upon me. So I mean, those were just those were just a few. But I would say Orson Welles as a director, uh, and and just uh, the idea that, frankly, even directors gave me a lot of inspiration. Concept of director who came from stage or radio, Orson Welles going into film and importing his skills from one industry where applicable into another. So I was never afraid to go into aircraft because I thought, well, I'm going to bring my sense of movie sets and story and put them in a plane. It it makes you somewhat fearless. If you think you have an asset you can bring into another industry, why not? So Orson brought his voice or he brought his skills as a storyteller. And Norman Bel Geddes, who um, was a stage designer in New York, blew away the proscenium and built a cathedral with the audience in it for the transfiguration of Christ. It's a play called The Miracle. And he just thought in in the world of immersion And, and then later exported those skills from theater into the New York World's Fair of 1939. So here's a man who went from designing stage sets in, in New York, one medium, the medium of theater, and took it into literally designing an Omnimover ride at the 39 World's Fair. So all of these little lessons I was learning really made me fearless and said, well, wait a minute, if this guy can do Broadway, you know, or I I could learn from him, or I could learn from this film director and I could take that storytelling essence and bring it into the theme park industry.
1: Sure. Well, and that makes sense because so many of the things that influenced us, the early theme park world were created and influenced by the great movie art directors. There were there wasn't a theme park industry. It was movie art directors leading the way.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have no formal education. I didn't go to college. I have no education in in that area also. So I'm very much book learned and there wasn't even that many books on production designers, but um, in my career, I tried to work with production designers and I would have lunch with anyone who's retired, who was a production designer in movies. And I still today thrive on hearing their stories and watching their documentaries. What can I still learn? What can I still learn from these great production designers?
1: Sure. Sure. Well, Speaking of, you know, getting things off the ground, we, we both grew up Disney fanatics, uh, on opposite coasts. <laughs> so I would remiss if I didn't ask you about your time, uh, starting off at the very beginning at Sunkist, I presume.
2: Boy, you know, working at SunKissed, I presume, which is the Adventureland location. There was one on main street. And, you know, Sunkist was a leasee. They were a company that was not owned by Disney. So they kind of flew under the radar. They would hire 16-year-olds, not 18-year-olds. So (laughs) the reason I got in there was I just couldn't wait. You know, Tom Morris started as a balloon seller at 14 at that concession i believe
1: really I it was
2: 14 Whoa, yeah Oh, wow i mean unless you want to unless you want to run around and do somersaults in the parade or something you you can't come in at an underage thing so i came in at 16 to sunkissed and they pretty much you know you, you squeeze oranges and make hot dogs and do a lot of manual labor and things but boy i was working in disneyland and and uh I probably have the record along with a few others for hearing the Swissca polka play out of the treehouse <laughs> eight hours a day because I'd be standing across from that. Um, but I, I learned to do my little dustpan and do kind of do a little dance and sweep to the music. I was the polka sweeper, sweeping the uh, <laughs> you know the uh, orange juice cups off the ground and and hot dog uh, trimmings. You know,
1: right, right. Was this when your uh, Walt impression made its public debut?
2: You know, it probably was. I think a little bit later, I started doing these recordings, these secret recordings um, that would be uh, played for those ride operators that were taking their breaks from the Jungle Cruise and and uh, was played in the Jungle Upstairs break area, which is a little patio above the Adventureland Bazaar. And so a friend of mine who was a Jungle Cruise skipper said, hey, Eddie, why don't you do a phony radio station um, and play, you know, play some hits and put it on a cassette and we'll have our own fake Disneyland radio station playing for the operators when they're on their break. So we did cruise FM fast Eddie here, rocket and Roll you, you know, and here's uh, Bob Welsh with his latest hit, you know, or Steely Dan from Asia, you know, here we are. (laughs) And then of course I would do, uh, you know, we would have intros and outros with funny um, satirical jabs at the Disneyland supervision and, and make fun of uh, the Disneyland management, of course. And it was Cruise FM, you know. And uh, we we had little sound bites from the rides in there and stuff. It was very fun.
1: That's fun. Well, And you would also DJ at their parties, didn't you?
2: Yeah. Well, they do have this one uh, party called the Banana Ball, where well, it was not sanctioned by the company, I have to say, at the <laughs> Orange sure. County Fairgrounds. And it was kind of... A bit, of, a bit of a bash. And uh, during the days when disco and rock and roll were duking it out on the radio and it was Donna Summer versus the Knack or uh-huh. something like that. I was up there spinning in a Jungle Cruise costume that I think they must have got from wardrobe. You know, it was kind of quasi sanctioned for the purpose of morale. Yeah. And I was spinning the records up there and it was so much fun. And uh, yeah, I, I even have the T-shirt still. Oh, that's fine. Fast <laughs> Diddy from Cruise FM is going to be playing the its out here at the Disneyland Banana Ball. You know, so it was a lot of fun.
1: Did Jungle Cruise come out on the side of disco or
2: on rock? You know, it was funny. People were climbing the DJ booth and it was making the records skip. So I would play like My Sharona, um, The Romantics, uh, What I Like About You, uh-huh. and then go right into, you know, a disco hit you know, Boogie Nights or something like that, or the Bee Gees, you know, and there'd be a bit of a rebellion. But I think after after a beer or so, people got got sort of used to it. <laughs> it's the
1: fairgrounds. You
2: got to cut it's enjoy grounds. yourself. It was a huge party. Yeah.
1: That's wild. Well, you know, you mentioned that you didn't have any formal education in any of this, but you got your big break at Knott's Berry Farm. And since you were the one who introduced me to the wonders of Knott's, especially of the the charm of the ghost town, I, I really like to sort of evangelize knots to people who may not have experienced it, who may only go to Disneyland, encourage them to stop off. I just wondered if you could talk a little about the sort of unique appeal of ghost town and what made them not family so special. Well, folks, I'll
2: tell you a little story about Ghost Town. <laughs> you know, uh, well, folks, you know, Ghost Town is real. It has real splinters in the wood for your hands when you run them over the handrail. It's got rusted signs and backwards S's and, you know, Disneyland, or you go there to Disneyland, they've they've got Mickey Mouse there, the big Mickey Mouse head on. Well, we've got an inmate who's hanging out in jail, smoking <laughs> an old cigar you can talk Talk to Sad Eye Joe. That's the difference between Knott's and Disneyland is Knott's was always meant as a living museum. And when people would ask me, I'd, I'd say, well, imagine your next door neighbor. Don't tell me who they are. Just imagine that next door neighbor you grew up with. And they started selling food out in the street and everybody came by for their food. And then one day they were so popular, they had people coming in their house for dinner And they're still your next-door neighbor. And then one day, that next-door neighbor, with how much they know about amusement parks, builds an amusement park with tremendous gratitude. And uh, that's the Knott family, you know? I mean, it was all built from the heart, that part. And, uh, you know, Walter Knott wanted to impress upon people the sacrifices his own parents made coming out West, which pretty much risked their lives and he came from nothing. So the ghost town and all those things there were, were a very soulful reminder. And this kind of living museum that perpetuated itself over time. So Knott's had a reality about it. It had also um, not the uh, momentum that you feel in a Disneyland. You go to Disneyland, you feel like you've got to get it all in. I just yeah. spent all this money. I got to get on 9.5 rides or I'm not going to be happy. And the meter is running. Well, Knott's Berry Farm was a very relaxed place, especially prior to them having a gate and admission. And you would sit on a bench. And there's Bogan V is there. And it was much more like a garden. And and Knott's Berry Farm had this relaxed. You're just part of our family. Your family's coming to be part of our family. You you live alone in an apartment. Come on over and have a home cooked chicken meal, you know, right mm-hmm. here at the Chicken Dinner Restaurant. Everyone's welcome, and I and so Knotts had this wonderful feel. And when I came, I wanted to be an Imagineer so bad. I tried to take the things I learned or wanted to do at Disney and try to shoehorn them into Knotts. And one of the designers took me aside and she goes, Eddie, you just don't have the farm mentality. What do you mean? She goes, go look at the farm. This is the farm, Eddie. It's not slick like Disney. There's no enamel. There's no perfectly polished, you know, enamel. There's nine coats of gloss on anything, right? It's all, it's all real. There's a reality about it. It's okay to have a guy in jail. You're going to go say hi to you know,
0: <laughs> sure, not yeah. as
2: a hangman's tree. I mean, there's things about it that's a little more warts and all, like you would find in Bodhi or a real ghost town or a national park. So it came from a different place. And the Knott family hired me, basically, by the advice of, a, of a, their architect. And I'm eternally thankful because uh, they took a chance on someone who really didn't have, uh, had talent. I had talent at the time, but it was very unvarnished and needed a lot of development and and so
1: well that's I'm interesting very that you know you were there at a time when it was still a not the not family business it was not a corporation it was the not family was still there
2: mr not was in a wheelchair with i believe parkinson's disease but he was in a wheelchair uh parked on a mobile home like your grandparents would be in I mean, an aluminum mobile home parked on the Notbury Farm property. Huh. And he sees the people walking down the sidewalk, heading into the park. And he's there with his, you know, Western shirt on and everything, very nicely dressed, had nurses taking care of him. And my little window, I had just the tiniest little drafting board, little desk, and my little window looked out at him. And it was a very, I don't know, you know, and I would see them wheel him out there and take great care of him and so forth. And kind of, you know, straighten his glasses. And, <laughs> no, no. Cause he really wasn't able to do a lot himself, yeah. but I was assured that he understood what was going on. He had perfect, you know, mental capabilities there. Sure. And so I felt a responsibility. There's the man that started it all outside my window on a, on a porch, just silently watching, but can't do anything. And it's my responsibility, this newcomer who's 20 years old or something, you know, to, uh, to do something. It really? so does I always took it seriously. You. I took it seriously. And Marion, not, you know, his daughter took it seriously and she would come and meet with you and very different dynamic. You didn't feel like you're working for a corporation that this family counts their money in October and decides what they're doing about a month later. And that's all the time you have to build a ride. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I'm not kidding you. That's kind of what decided a lot of things. So um, Daryl Anderson, uh, her son. There, there was a lot of wonderful people there that I eternally am grateful to.
1: Having the man himself there watching really would impress upon you the importance of what you're doing. I mean, you can imagine working at Disneyland. If Walt was just sort of sitting outside the gates watching people go by, you know, it would really oh, underscore it's, it's, it's
2: worse to you. Worse yet, your drafting board is at St. Joseph's looking in the window and he's in the hospital bed. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly. Because
2: Walter Knott couldn't come over and tell me what to do. He had to silently just watch what's going on. So you wonder. And I talked to uh, you know, one of the people who'd been there many, many years, and he walked me over to introduce me to him. Oh wow. You know, and just says, Hello, Mr. Knott. Hello. You know, he just, like looks at him and talks to him and 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 I said hello to Mr. Not and Wow. He, you know, barely moved. But there he was. He wanted me to be introduced to him. And so uh I wish I would have been able to uh do more or meet him in a more cognitive way or the where we could have a conversation. But, um, but I, I really enjoyed my time there and I treasure it. Sure.
1: Well, what I love about knots is that they're so, like you said, it's, it's a very living thing, very warts and all thing. I mean, you can go into a barn and some sort of gnarly old guy will show you a display of barbed wire or about the Borax mule train. Uh, You know, there are things you don't get in a theme park, your average theme park.
2: Your point, Michael. There is a photograph, and it's still there, of a Native American wearing a uniform taken from Custer's Last Stand. He's <laughs> yes. wearing it. He's wearing it. And the story there says that he w- that they paid him a dollar. The person who got the photograph paid him a dollar to put the coat on, and that's what he would do. He made money posing for pictures wearing a little bighorn. It's kind of like having a screen-used piece of movie. This is Knots <laughs> right. is the real history version of that. You know, Knots doesn't have the Iron Man costume in Tomorrowland. They've got this photo of a Native American wearing the uh, the uniform from or the coat from Little Bighorn. You know, or uh, like you say, all these really interesting artifacts. I, I used to take my breaks and go in that museum. It's called the uh, Gold Trails Museum, I believe. And they would have. They don't have everything they used to have, but they used to have articles from the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, the San Francisco earthquake, wow. all these great moments. A lot of these people would contribute things to Walter Knott. They would give him stuff, so he uh, he didn't go out buying it. He didn't have buyers doing it. I used to buy mm-hmm. props for the farm to put in projects and age them myself and stuff. You could kind of do everything. That was the beauty of it. There wasn't departments for everything. You just kind of did it. So you learned you learned by doing bad versions of things, and they hopefully get better, you know
1: <laughs> well, one of the things you did do, uh, we should mention that this year marks or actually it was last year. Uh, everything kind of runs together now. it's the fortieth anniversary of the wacky soapbox racers, and you've actually put together a site to celebrate that fondly remembered attraction
2: i get I get asked a lot about it. And people have much fonder memories of it than I do. So I thought, well, you yeah, know, it'd be nice. Why not for the 40th? Just take all these old photos I have in a drawer construction shots and mom, my mom coming out there and <laughs> you know all the things a 20 year old would do because he just, you know, just got married. Right. And, and put them on a website. So it's called wackysoapboxracers.com. And um, I, I'm so moved by stories because people were were kids then, right? And it's one of the few thrill rides I think a kid could compete on. I didn't mm-hmm. realize it, but that really made it magical for a lot of people. And everything I was disappointed with as the designer, a young designer that didn't know what he could or couldn't do, others were uh, entertained by the ride system. They loved it. So um, I invite you to go and leave your memory on the site. It's it's a bit, bit more of an archive of, uh, people's stories about riding the ride. Yeah. It's really fun to see. And
1: that's actually ride That I grew up hearing about, um, you know, not knowing anything about knots or the West coast attractions. That's a name that would come up a lot. So it obviously cast a pretty big influence uh, the way people remember it for sure.
2: Well, it's ridiculous. The thing is ridiculous. I mean, at the time I was trying to put things into this, this little ride, not, not knowing what I couldn't do. It's, you know, uh, so I was putting Henry Mancini background music in the ride from the movie The Pink Panther or Spike Jones, uh novelty music using Doodles Weaver and the, the Dance of the Hours and there they go, Beetle Bomb and all that stuff, you know, as <laughs> yeah. the opening to a ride or playing the Firehouse 5 plus 2 as an homage to Disney in there, you know, just and the Knots people, they didn't even know that. They had, there's no one there that had any Disney trivia knowledge. So you could put all this stuff in. Uh-huh. And nobody would ever know. You could Easter egg your way, you know, around the block.
1: Well, it's funny you mention that because we talk a lot about music on the podcast, and we're all music lovers here. Uh, since Soapbox Racers was really your first chance to add music to a theme park experience, I wonder if you would talk about the role music plays in your creative process because I know it plays a big role. How you've incorporated it into projects over the years.
2: You know, Nonsbury Farm is where I started my love affair with. Uh, music because um, I felt like, you know, the ghost town being real. And when you look in the window displays, it's full of antiques at the time. It's a little different today, but back then everything was like looking into a vignette, you know, kind of like looking at an animal in the Museum of Natural History. It's in a perfect little environment. Well, those Western fronts were like that. So my mother gave me a book, Nevada Ghost Towns and Mining Camps. And so I started my library of Real photos of real interiors with real cowboys. And I needed music so I could teleport myself into that world. So I would, you know, I get a cassette player back then, right? And big headphones, giant cans, and put them on my head. And I would put myself in that world and try to be inside the photo looking out. How could I be, you know, at that spittoon in the saloon and wonder what those guys were thinking? And that would inform my design because knots had to come from a real place, it wasn't Disney. It needed to come from the reality that the ghost town came from. So how do you get there? It's a very different assignment than being a Disney imagineer, I think. Knott's sure. was was, I have to be history. I have to be a method actor. I have to become what I do that. And the music helps me do that. So um the playlist would of course become background music. Um, it plays a role. Even today, projects that I work on, if I'm, you know, I was doing a woman's yacht not too long ago, and I had. It had to have classic details, so I played sea channies till my family came up here and just pulled all the cables out of the wall. <laughs> you know, they couldn't stand, they couldn't stand any any more of that. But uh, that's what I do, and and uh, I feel like music is also the most inexpensive way of setting a mood, but it can also destroy an environment if it's wrong. So, yeah. um, in tuning an experience what we hear is right up there with what we see. And uh, it has to match what we see in one way or another. It'll emotionally enhance it or destroy it.
1: Right. Well, and it can be unexpected. You know, you put a Dick Dale in Space Mountain and people might not have seen that coming, but it worked really nicely.
2: Boy, that was a fight. Not, Not everybody wanted to see it coming either. And sometimes you can do things on two levels. You can say, well, Dick Dale is memorable to my parents because of the Tones and the birth of surf and all that stuff. And that will appeal to dad. But at the time, the film Pulp Fiction had just come out. And this resulted in his song, Lou being introduced to an entirely new audience. And their lens on that song reminded them of the film or something cool. And so two different groups of people saw the same sound and artist in a different way. And both as relevant. And so I kind of look for things like that. I look for these weird connections where, you know, the martini craze of the 90s was coming back and bringing all this lounge music. Well, my parents thought that was cool the first time around. And when it's revived, young people see it and everyone can enjoy it in the middle, you know, kind of like a lava lamp. It never goes away, you know.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, before we leave Knott's, I want to ask about something you mentioned here and there. Uh, I've heard you talk about it, but I want to know more about it. And that is your idea for the Rum Runners ride, which was uh, one of your <laughs> ideas that was never built.
2: Yeah. You know, the Rum Runners of 1921, um, I was trying to pitch my way into a job, you know, and uh, it was uh, not easy. And I used to walk around Knott's Farm and look around and say, well, what could I come up with to pitch to them to try to land a job? And and uh, I thought, well, you know, the Roaring Twenties was a themed area they had. And what, what happened to the Roaring Twenties? What prohibition happened to the Roaring Twenties? I thought, well, that would be an interesting sort of Pirates of the Caribbean light. Knott's Berry Farm cannot afford a Pirates of the Caribbean, but they kind of had a mine ride. So I thought, well, what if you could do sort of the funniest, most irreverent, nonviolent version of, you know, Pops and robbers and Keystone cops and gangsters and things like that and and literally the Prohibition era of uh, making making uh, stills and things like that. So uh, I just kind of storyboarded a ride and and again not having an education I would look at the Disney books and those sketches that were done. By Mark Davis and Bruce Bushman and different ones, Sam McKim, where you lift the roof off the ride and you can see the little walls and where the cars and tracks go, kind of like a model railroad layout. So I started doing what's called an axometric view. I didn't know how to say that then, but <laughs> I would draw the track and draw little scenes and and dream a little bit of uh, of these silly gangsters who blow who uh, get raided and blow up their stills and flood. You know what looks like Chicago, mm-hmm. or, or the streets with uh, their booze and they're drowning in it. You know, and of course, uh, this sounds like a typical Mark Davis scene from 1970 or something. Yeah, you know, I don't know if that would fly today by today's standards, but that was just something that was there, and it was a very much of the Keystone Cops versus the dopey, dopey uh, bandits or the uh, the gangsters at the time, and you rode around in 1920s livers through this ride. Uh, And uh, it wasn't a water ride. It was a a vehicle ride. And so I pitched it to Rick Campbell, who is the gentleman uh, who is ex-wed, by the way, worked on Walt Disney World, um, who was the designer of the Roaring Twenties. And I just showed it to him kind of as a a way of getting a critique. I didn't even expect to get the job, but he loved the idea. Unfortunately, Marion Knott, Knott's Farm, has a taboo against alcohol. They didn't serve it at the time. They were kind of from a temperance generation. And uh, I thought, well, that's the last thing we want to put in there. So she hated it.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) So Rick goes,
2: well, I know it took me, you know, six weeks or eight weeks to show your idea and I love it. And of course, I already thought I had a job. You know, he's like, I'd love to hire you for this. You sit in the corner and have these ideas and draw these little drawings of yours and I will go build it. And I'm like, okay. And he had a rec for assistant project designer. And I said, boy, do I get a business card or something? He goes, yeah. <laughs> I go, oh, I'm, I'm giving up my career at Sears selling washers to do this. This is a big deal for me. And he's like, well, you know, yeah, you know, and frankly it was even a pay cut to believe, believe it or not. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah. I was actually doing pretty well at Sears. I was on commission selling appliances, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, so it was a wonderful opportunity, but that had not ended up being the one that got built. And I think the twenties Main Street was my second bite, unsuccessful bite at the apple to get uh, something irreverent like that into uh, a park. But
1: into a park, yeah, happen. absolutely. Well, you leave knots, uh, and you took a took a turn designing singles bars. Is this correct?
2: Well, yeah, I did. Yeah, I worked for, well, Mexican restaurants. Red Onion is a popular Mexican restaurant that has a cocktail lounge, you know, either upstairs or downstairs. And they wanted to be TGI Fridays. They wanted to be the big eclectic, you know, trombone on the wall and crazy signs hanging everywhere. And I thought, boy, this is like set decoration. I could do this. So yeah, I started freelancing for them, building different things and doing fun stuff for them. And we did kind of a tiki theme in one way. We did several different ideas and different spins on a Mexican decor, very, very of the time. But mm-hmm. uh, but it, but it taught me how to do some outside work and retail work. I even did a project in Canada, a giant Rolly Crump esque tight flying machine that hung in the Edmonton mall of all things. So my boss didn't want to do freelance work. I think he was just tired of it. And so when these gigs would come in for him, he would turn them over to me. So he didn't want to go meet with the restaurant people. He didn't want to do the interact of this. So I was more than eager to get those little side jobs.
1: Yeah, well, that's fine. And if you wind up working on this sort of legendarily mysterious project, Uh, The Six Flags Power Plant, which was in Baltimore. And this really starts putting you in contact with some real Disney legends, some real uh, big names.
2: You know, it it, it really did. And I ended up uh, leaving Berry Farm. I had been there and worked uh, under Robin Hall on Camp Snoopy. And so I kind of felt like I had done everything that I could do there. I learned uh, as much as I could learn. From Knott's Berry Farm at the time and was super, still super grateful. But a new management team was there and, you know, they had senior designers. I didn't think there was anywhere to go. So I interviewed at a, at a company called Gary Goddard Productions. Gary Goddard was an ex-wed Imagineer himself, kind of on the theater side, more of a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he had worked on the dee Doo Review, Pioneer Hall. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, very skilled and very fun and very talented. And went off and uh, it was ex-Disney. And started his own company. But Gary Goddard was a big fan of animators and a big fan of those Disney legends. He probably spent half his time at work in Herb Ryman's office or Mark Davis's office. Mm -hmm. He lived for those guys. And so when he started his own company, it was in the twilight of their career, Michael. They were almost being edged out. They were getting less and less to do. Uh, You know, there was no Walt to come in Mark's office and say, you know, here's what I like about Thunder Mesa, here's what I don't like. These things were kind of falling on deaf ears. So these guys were kind of ripe for freelance work. So here I interview and get this job to work on, get one show, and they interview me to do the Laboratory of Scientific Wonders. Jules Verne. And I'm like, wow, this is like Captain Nemo's submarines and telescopes. And it's everything I couldn't do at Knott's. I did the Old West and uh, now I get to do this other thing. They're like, yeah, do you think you could do this show? It's a walkthrough. I thought, well, you know, and so I go in the office, get this job. And there is Herbert Ryman, a man who did the original rendering of Disneyland. Here comes Mark Davis. Oh, my goodness. This is the man who drew those pirates. And Gary's introducing me to these people. And Gary's having him work on the power plant. Oh, my goodness. You know, and so just meeting those legends and these guys coming in out of the office uh, was an experience for me. You know, Herb comes in my office and um, I just ran across the photo the yesterday of the storyboard that was on my wall when Herb Ryman came in my office. I I don't know why I had a picture of it, but I did. And Gary's like, well, Herbie, uh, here's Eddie Sato. He's working on the laboratory show and, or something else I was doing. here's, here's his show. And what do you think of his storyboards? And you, know, Eddie, take him through it. So I do, and and Herbie goes, well, it's not very good, you know. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, they're 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 just not very good, you know. And he tells that to my boss. I'm thinking, well, you know, this is, I I don't I don't have 90 years experience. So I'm now only like 25 or something, <laughs> right? You know, uh, I don't want to get fired, you know. And Gary's like, well, thank you, Herb. That's terrific. But Herb turned out to be a really wonderful man. And and Gary teamed me up with him to work on Monopoly Park in Atlantic City, which was this Monopoly board using a real public park at the corner of Park Place and Boardwalk. Um, so I got to oh, wow. work with this gentleman and I realized just how much these Imagineers are more than that. They're real people with real life experience. They bring so much of their real life into their work. And this made me want to do the same thing, although I didn't have much real life to bring yet. um, It made me want to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, when you look at somebody like Herb Ryman, I mean, you want to talk about a life with a lot of experience. He'd been everywhere and done all, all sorts of things all over the world.
2: Or no! His, he would he when I he heard I was going to Paris and I get this job for Disneyland Paris and then asked Marty, I said, "Can I bring in Herbert Ryman to work with me?" I couldn't find an illustrator; everybody was busy. And I said, "Well, let's let's get let's." Marty even suggested, "Let's get her out of retirement, but he won't work for you, Eddie. He's he just likes to go to lunch and have you know something to drink and go to these retiree things. He used to go to this thing called the Dinosaur Lunch, which was you know, all the old animators and Imagineering legends from Walt Disney World, Bill Martin, I mean, Fred Hope. I mean, people that worked on Walt Disney World and Ken Anderson, um, uh, Clem Hall. I mean, all these different people were there. Paul and Campbell was a staple there. And it was Thursdays and you would go there and have lunch. So Herb takes me to that thing when I get to Disney. I know I'm jumping around here, but that was where you heard these life experiences and Herb would say, you know, um history, you know, to go, Eddie, history would grab you by the throat. And he would be more than happy to make a list for you of where to go in any foreign country, mm-hmm. you know, to inspire you. And even at MGM as a young man, he had to leave to go on a world tour and kind of give up and risk his job a little bit to go on a tour to see the real China or these places he was illustrating for the films. He wanted to be legit. It made me want to be the same way, right. so I, I do value research very much.
1: Well, sure. I mean, when you have that real world thing, you're you're emulating. You're not making a copy of a copy of a copy. You're really, you know, building based on the real McCoy.
2: Yeah, and I, so much so much of the time, I do see theme parks that are copies of other theme parks, and I feel like it's just such a missed opportunity. To go into the soul of the real environment and then find something that the other designer didn't find and capitalize on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and
2: that is truly the gift to the audience. That is the Easter egg that the audience assimilates, is the culture that informs the worlds you're creating. Sure.
1: And I think that's a risk you run when you get a generation of people. Uh, raised on theme parks, who only study theme parks and don't have that real world experience, uh, who aren't informed by other things outside the theme park world, you just get a copy of a copy.
2: Well, I was doing it, and at Knotts, that's exactly what I was doing it. And then I finally got to travel, and and then Ryman, when I told him John DeCuir, who did the Hello Dolly set, was my favorite designer, goes, "Well, I was his teacher at Chenard." <laughs> I go, "Oh." You you were his, t- yes, I taught John to cure. I go, well then why don't we just cut to the chase? What did you teach him? He says, well, I told him to bring candy to all the people in the research department and treat them very nice because research is the basis. And of course the research department at a movie studio has all the scrap files and books and they put together a package for you of whatever it is you're doing. You don't have to sit in the library. They will oh, wow. put together a box for you of research of, you know, Ming Dynasty or 19th century New York. And you have a researcher working for you that puts that together and just hands the production designer because time is of the essence. You know, Hollywood was a dream factory then. you had to do these things in a week, not a month and sure. just feed you history. And that's what Herb was referring to. You need either you're going to do it yourself, or find a researcher to help you find that. And the better the researcher, the better your work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why we have Smithsonian manhole covers on Main Street in the you know in the street. Is because you're like the street's an opportunity. Everything is an opportunity to teach, or to or to entertain, or or to reward the curious. You know
1: absolutely you know there's so little about the power plant online i just wonder if you could talk a little about what your attraction was like the one that you worked on for that uh, six flags project
2: well it looked good (laughs) yeah (laughs) it looked good no the no it was the it was the it was a laboratory of of scientific wonders it was professor phineas flag now now professor flag according to gary goddard he, he invented everything way before Thomas Edison or Jules Verne. They all ripped him off. And of course, he lived in Baltimore. That's where they would all go for information, of course. So you can imagine this story where f- this fictitious character, Professor Flagg, had thought of everything. So you're going to come to his laboratory and you're going to see blueprints of the first rocket before Jules Verne or the first submarine or any of these kind of things. And so um, this one piece of creative had already been done, which was kind of a knockoff of The Wizard of Oz, where you walk in and there's a, a giant projection screen, very much like when you meet the wizard in the in the film, of this professor, except it's called Phineas Vision. I mean, it, there's a little tongue-in-cheek here, or a lot of tongue-in-cheek, and this professor greets you, he's, you know and uh, talks to each guest and there's lightning in test tubes and i mean it's it's pipe organs and it's very grandiose and he greets you and he says you know one day people will fly through the air people will dive beneath the sea people will travel and he says how do i know because i've already invented them welcome to my world of scientific <laughs> wonders And that's kind of what it was. And you'd walk through a series of scenes, a home of the future, the power source that runs the power plant. And then there was a giant model kind of like Progress City would be at the General Electric Carousel of Progress or a big model city done in black light, all animated of what Baltimore would look like from a 19th century point of view with like Jules Verne or Robbie Doe, the French illustrator mm-hmm. with you know flying blimps and airships and domes and it was all very uh visionary and the professor's voice would narrate it you know yes there will be the electric lights you will see marvelous submarines and flying airships and it's my beloved Baltimore it's coming you know is this uh-huh. great thing and the animated model really worked you know and i i wanted to knock this off for disneyland paris um you know but again these things were funny sort of homages to that so that was a little bit of what but my show was was doing all of these things and uh kind of creating a weird walkthrough with a, a home of the future which was literally like a scene out of the carousel of progress um with a, with a mechanical dog that comes out named scraps, you know, and there was a, a Victrola <laughs> that narrated it, you know, and it would, oh, that's it was a fun. pitch man. So the, the Victrola would say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the home of the future. Dun, 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 dun. Isn't that amazing. And after every invention, isn't that amazing. Yeah. You know? And, uh, <laughs> right. you know, absolutely nothing can go wrong, go wrong go wrong go wrong you know so it was it was a broken record home of the future and so we made fun of a lot of those things kind of played for laughs so i think it's probably the most i've ever talked about any of that i'm sure you're through with it but no, uh, no it sounds that's, really that's fun a lovely power plant you know and and i got to do the voices for that too so it was it was a first oh. chance to uh do some voiceover work and perform in the attractions and do a little bit of fun stuff, but oh, it didn't so last long. Fun. You know, the mechanics aspect of it, the budgets were so low, everything looked beautiful, but it didn't run for very long. And so, uh, and also it needed rides, the attraction needed rides and Gary begged them to put rides in, but the budget wasn't there for rides. So I do, I learned two lessons. One, you're only as good as your operator mm. opening days, the best day you have. And it goes downhill from there. That's what lesson one to a young designer. The second one is, um, You know, sometimes, you know, you can do miracles with a low budget. You can make things look gorgeous. But if you don't build something that does have a certain longevity to it or is reliable, well, those effects get shut off. So you need to be realistic with what you create and design so the effects can have a a certain shelf life. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're not realistic, the operator is going to be less realistic. And like the ice machine in the Indiana Jones ride that would drop debris from the ceiling, it gets shut off. If it's not something they can manage. And we right. see attractions all over the place. I think, you know, I don't dare I say the word Yeti, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of things that that are even in wealthy companies, you know, that they just can't for one reason or another, they just can't keep it running. So the power plant was a wonderful. I don't know. It's funny. We all learn lessons. Knots was one lesson on how to be very resourceful for not a lot of money and make a lot of fun. For 98 cents sometimes. And six flags was a step a little beyond that, had more than 98 cents. It was a dollar ninety-eight. Mm-hmm. But Tony Baxter came and he really he knew that. He knew it was a dollar ninety-eight, but he saw potential. And I thank Tony for seeing my potential and hiring me, you know, for what he for the good he saw in it and what I could do, uh, what I could draw and and design and think of. So um, yeah, Bruce Gordon saw pictures of it. I would sneak spy photos to him, and uh, Tony hired me right after that project. so I, I can thank thank Gary for the opportunity and and that project. it It may have failed at the box office, but it got me a career. So I became an Imagineer because of it.
1: That's great. Well, you know, I would imagine that it would certainly appeal to Tony. It has a lot of uh, Discovery Bay DNA.
2: Well, Gary told, Gary told Tony, he said, I think this is a rumor, but it, somebody said, well, you know, Gary said to either Marty or Tony, well, I'm going to go build Discovery Bay. So Tony had a keen interest in, you know, the homage, wink, wink, you know, to to building this because Tony could never seem to get Discovery Bay built. He built elements to his credit. He got the submarine. He got all out of it. You know, it doesn't always happen that way, but, uh, you know, that, that that's just That's kind of the breaks, I suppose. That's how these things happen, right?
1: Well, since he was the guy who brought you into the company and before we segue to all that, why don't you just tell us, tell us a little bit about Tony Baxter.
2: You know, when people ask me about Disneyland Paris and they say, what is it that makes Disneyland Paris so special, Eddie? Why are there all these little like obsessive details and little things in it? You know, and, and I just read a a quote, because Tom Morris and I are very good friends and, we talk a lot about this is that it's the park by fans for fans and Tony's a fan, you know, and Tony hired me probably because he saw that I was a fan and a designer, but that I came at it not as necessarily a purist. It's sort of like you have one foot in the traditions of what, you know, what Walt would do, but you always want to do the next thing that, well, Walt would always do the next thing. Mm-hmm. People say, what would Walt do? Well, he would do the next thing, but you, certain, you, you also don't leave certain values. You don't leave certain ethics and you don't leave doing it right. And you don't leave the richness or you don't leave certain things. And Tony, having such a deep, rich understanding of those things, um, loves the product. He lives the product. There's no mistake that, the turret in his bedroom, looks out at the Disneyland fireworks. I mean, I don't know anyone who has that. Tony Baxter is so deeply connected to the product. He understands it in a way that uh, many of us don't. And I I will also say that Tony sees things through a, a theatrical lens, through a cinematic lens. I do, as a designer, he does almost in the beats of a story too. And he'll always see something that I don't see in a particular project or a film. It's fun to discuss a movie with him, but um that's, you know, he, he's very, very passionate and he, he will fight for uh the product. And I think Disneyland Paris is what it is because at the highest levels, he went to Michael. I mean, main street wouldn't have arcades and things like that. Yeah. Did I draw them and does that? Yeah, sure. But Tony Baxter, at at his level, was, uh, you know, (laughs) he he would tell me, you know, I would say, well, look, they want to put track lights in all these stores. He goes, Eddie, just go tell them we're not doing that. He gave (laughs) me, no, 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 by having my back, I became a tough guy. and would just be the bad cop and just go in and go, well, we're not doing that. We're not doing cheap slat wall in this store. We're not doing track lights in here. Well, 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 no, we're not doing that. It's not Disney. We're not doing it, okay? Now, what do you need? Well, we need this kind of lighting. Okay, fine. There's another way to probably do that. We'll hide the lights back here. We'll create the illusion of that. Well, it might be a little more money or take a little more time, but we'll get you what you want to the merchandise department. We'll make this what you need, but we're not just going to do what they do over at uh, Toys R Us, you know? Sure. Whatever. And by the way, merchandise people on Disneyland Paris and the foods um, were wonderful people to work with, by the way. They got it too. So I'm very much appreciative of the right team. At
1: Imagineering, you set up something called Concept Development Studio. This is something a lot of people might not know about, but which was kind of a big deal. What was this? How did it come
2: about? I had come back from Disneyland Paris. Of course, you spent five years trying not to replicate Walt Disney World. That's, you know, it was, it was a long, it was a long way. I had a lot of ideas in a lot of different areas, and Disney was acquiring companies like, you know, ABC and ESPN, and starting online. And, and to me, looking over the fence at all these exciting things, I felt like I could do a lot more. But I did—I wasn't in that mechanism either. You're down at Disneyland, you're working in Indiana Jones, or, you know, it's kind of like getting stuck with IP, and you're just doing that. So I went to Marty and I said, you know, I could do a lot more. I could—I could be creating in a lot of different areas. And I just saw the R&D department's open house of all their new widgets. None of these widgets are applied to the parks. They're just an interesting invention. Mm -hmm. I would like to set up a studio, a little launching pad, and bring in some really fresh talent. I mean, why don't we get a designer from Mercedes-Benz to come in and try a ride vehicle? I want to see a, a Space Mountain rocket from the guy who just did the 500SL or something. Marty's like, oh. New talent? I go, yeah, let's get a little more diverse. Let's try more things. Let's push it out a little bit. And I just want a little budget to pitch ideas to you, but I want to be able to pitch whatever I want. And I like to go to the studio and, and, and network other divisions, take on other things. And he said, you know, I'll try anything once, kind of a thing. Sure. So, had a budget, put together a wonderful team. Um, Susan Bonds was a producer, Pam Dahl. We had a variety of kind of a little core talent team. Christian Hope has gone on to run Paramount Parks Design. Oh, you know, okay. I mean, we had some wonderful, wonderful people in there, people who run portfolios. Today, Owen Yoshino is in this group. So we had lots of great Imagineers who've gone on to do great things. So at any rate, it's, it was exciting. And we started out doing
0: weird
2: things like interactive foods or, you know, foods you can play with. Let's come up with signature foods for the parks or let's go and... uh Look at new ride systems or uh, this is where the encounter restaurant came from Uh, or um, the park, the Pal Mickey toy and things like this, which was called the Park Pal. So uh, even online worlds where we wanted to, you know, take Discovery Island to do something with it where the guests interact with an online experience. It was going to be the game missed for a while was going to be played on. Yeah. All these wild things. So we just came out and, and I'm very prolific in that way about doing, if you hate an idea, I'm not personal about it. I'll just come up with another one and, you know, kind of like the Terminator, you just keep coming back, you know, so <laughs> right. no, I just I, I decided to go fine. If you hate it, fine. There's another or tomorrow morning. I'm not going away. We're just going to come back with more until you're sick of it. So, or you build something. And so uh, we also, I also had the Tokyo Disneyland portfolio, which was master planning Tokyo Disneyland and asked to bring my energy or, or uh, you know, something to that project. So we were kind of sharing a lot of that, but a lot of wonderful things. ABC Times Square Studios came out of that project. If you watch I'm Good sure. Morning America and that building, that came out of, uh, that was an initiative our studio. We pitched an idea for a live cafe that uh, would be a Good Morning America that evolved into what you see in Times Square. That was a WDI project. That's very
1: interesting. I, I have to ask... Uh, what what is, what is interactive food? That sounds fascinating.
2: Well, you know, I was interested in f- performing food, food that you could microwave that would turn into something, time-release foods. Um, there's foods that, you know, like you ever put pop rocks in your mouth? Oh, yeah, sure. All right. Okay, it does something, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, how can I take the sequencing of a show or an attraction and make foods that do more than just sit there? Food that if you played with it, changes color. Imagine if a Dole Whip did something. I mean, Uh, the only exciting thing about a Dole Whip is how hollow it is, right? It tastes great. Now they're putting it in the Orange Bird. But at Knott's, we had sippers. And they sold like crazy. And they were containers. And I wanted to re-engineer containers into devices. So the container of the sipper did something with the food, it acknowledged the food, and they work basically push the bar a lot further, and say there's things you could do. So we did. I can't say what it is because it's NDA thing, but we did this amazing sipper concept. They never did it. They should, but I was trying to really push that. And we had a wonderful team of people that came up with great things. I just thought, hey, the you know the Dodgers have the Dodger dog. There's no excuse that Dole Whip is like. The only, back then, in 1994, was it was barely invented. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of signature items you were hungry for. A Mickey Mouse-shaped popsicle? Really? That's it? It's just the shape? Why can't it right. be, like, incredibly distinctive, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like where you go, oh, my goodness. Why is the imagine? Basically, I got to this. I had this the epiphany that the restaurants were not at the same level as the attractions. So we brought in some leading chefs, some five-star chefs and had some conferences and Eric Jacobson got very excited. He was running Disney world. He was running a, a food program himself and he actually got things made like the cone food from wisdom or whatever that was, or wise or something that the cone, the, the yeah, I know witch. that, that the the hand famous. Witch. I didn't name Disney that. I did not witch. name that. I had nothing to do with the hand, witch. Yeah. Anyway, I know, I know that that will go with the marsupalami will go down in the name in the great names of Disney products. So uh, I I just thought, well, you know, why can't we push the bar the same way we do with attractions? People spend a lot of money on food and they sit in restaurants for a lot of their vacation. Why is the restaurant not given the same level of creative thought as the food? So that, that was the point there.
1: Yeah. I find it also fascinating. You guys were you know, it's funny, these attractions that kind of turn up over the years that uh, in the early days of the Disney Internet, everybody was buzzing about the Mist Project. And then to find out that you worked on that, that's such a uh, funny turnaround.
2: Well, that was Susan Bonds' pet job. She yeah. was primarily involved in that. But that went through our studio.
1: That's very interesting. Well, you know, you talk about the things that you worked with, like Pal Mickey that made its way into the park. These were some pretty advanced ideas for the time.
2: Well, they were productized, so the R and D group would come up with something that's maybe too large, like a like a back buddy, mm-hmm. yeah, a mechanical back buddy that you're carrying around. That's an literally an animatronics. So, you know, I would just say, well, what do you do when you get on Space Mountain with that? You can't sit right. in the seat. What are you going to leave this thing on the dock? So, it became apparent that becoming a creative partner and helping them productize. So we had done it as a wearable that straps to your wrist, and then it turned into the pal, making it got bigger back into the plush. So these things go through very, you know various stages of development. So um our team, but i t- I loved it. It was fun fun to me that you know one meeting is about this electronic device, and then the next meeting is about you know audio systems and putting onboard audio on Space Mountain, which was going to be a breakthrough thing. So I was also taking some of these r and d things and using them in my other portfolios. I was given the FedEx project to put, to do, you know, Disney world and Disneyland So there's different, different things. So you're like pollinating, you're like, Ooh, let's take this invention and stick it over here. Or, you know, let's, let's take that, let's take that development and uh, try it over here. So, yeah.
0: Did you do the uh, voiceover for the FedEx post show at Disney world?
2: You know, I might have.
0: I was wondering that as well. Actually. Well, I
2: didn't do that. I, I did one of the TV I, on the television channel that runs in the queue. They had like a TV channel.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. And I did lifestyles. of the.
2: I did Robin Leach with lifestyles of the rich and alien. I did that one. <laughs> oh, and, uh, wow. You know, and they had, uh, yeah, they had a comedian in there. They had. They had shot theme park productions, shot some commercials. I might have – there were some voices, though, in that RCA post-show. Yeah, there the was, lab you know, retriever. With the, the kid that had the frog yeah. in his hand and all that. We, we changed all that around, but I'm not sure how many voices were in that. Um, I did do the voice of the Space on on Boreado at Disneyland, which was, uh, you know, we have ignition or uh, launch right. sequence engaged. And, you know, <laughs> that was fun because it made it onto the record. I mean, that stuff like the as a Disney fan was like – I can't believe I'm in the soundtrack. That was so fun, you know.
1: Oh, totally, totally.
2: But you don't really earn it when you cast yourself, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, how did you get that job? I go, well, you first have to get control of the project. Then everyone leaves the room, and you just kind of do
1: it. <laughs> hey, but it worked, man. The, the uh, you yeah. know people people well, know the taken. bits. So yeah. uh, to this day, you know, you talk about. Sort of cross pollinating these things, you were coming across these little, little gags, these R and D sort of projects, and a lot of that really came together in uh, Pooh's Honey Hunt, which you know celebrated last year its twentieth anniversary. Uh, It was such a big game changer; it's become so famous on in America as well as in Japan. I just wondered if you had any reflections on that experience and the like the really huge reputation that ride has gained over the years
2: well you know it's funny i i kind of look back at my own past and i realized i was very rarely was i ever given anything fresh like a clean sheet of paper very rarely i usually get projects to fix i'm kind of i've realized i'm kind of more of like a a fixer the soapbox ride was fixing another ride sure um mission space came out of um literally Walt Disney World saying we want a thrill ride, not a ride through sort of theatrical experience. Uh, You know, can you fix that? I was only given the Tokyo portfolio to um, reimagine a few projects that were not being received terribly well. So each one of these things is a little bit of a fix. And in the case of the Pooh's Honey Hunt, it was solving a very big problem, which was Tokyo Disney Sea. the Oriental Land Company, rightfully probably feared, was going to cannibalize the same audience, just move them from one park to the other. Right. How do we keep both parks full when this new magnet opens next door? So they wanted an e-ticket. And uh, looking around, uh, a lot of these things for me were, were either fixing something or, or an accident happens. You know, you're sort of looking around and and um, they only wanted existing ride systems. Oriental Land Company was like, frankly, they're smart about this. They wanted things. Disney had already pretty much proven. And why mm-hmm. not? Rides are expensive to perfect, right? So, uh, and But there wasn't anything on the shelf. The shelf was pretty bare. It was like rock and roller coaster. And that was about it. Maybe rocket rods. And uh, that was not a winner. So... I was a little desperate to come up with an e-ticket to present back to them to hedge their bet against Tokyo Sea. But, but over at Tokyo Sea, they had a ride. And it hadn't been finished yet. It was the bumper boats, the uh, Aquatopia. And what was unique about it was it didn't have a track. I thought, well, that's interesting. It's a trackless ride, but it's in like an inch of water. It mm-hmm. didn't seem terribly thrilling to me, at least on paper it didn't look very thrilling. well, you know, what if we could take this and use it as a dark ride? Take that system, put it in a building. So you make a few phone calls. And you go, well, can can you do this? Put it in a building. And then then the meeting comes like, well, what's the IP going to be? Well, Winnie the Pooh in Japan was more popular than Mickey Mouse. The issue is Winnie the Pooh is really boring as Mm -hmm. a ride. I mean, Winnie the Pooh in 20 minutes of a movie is pretty much stuck in a hole. And people come visit <laughs> right. him stuck in a hole, and they uh, pull on him and leave, and they, another one comes and pulls on him and leaves. And annoying okay. characters like Rabbit, which are just very annoying, come and Erotic. guilt him for being in the hole. Right. You know, he's being guilted, he's being this, you know. And 50% of the movie is his his rear end in the hole, and the other end is just not a terribly good series of vignettes not very active rides have to be active things you have to have something happen to you so you know Winnie the Pooh is probably going to be the idea. So maybe this ride system by its movement, by its unexpected nature, maybe we could take and make a ride that looks like a typical boring fantasy land, low expectation, you know, you know, 50-foot mural with little cars lined up. Maybe you could do that but then surprise everybody. And you think there's going to be a track. You never really look down at Snow White or those rides, but mm-hmm. then like Peter Pan, it just kind of soars. It does something exciting. So we said, well, let's take the most active movie, The Blustery Day, where the wind blows and there's action and something you'll physically feel the wind. And then the wind will blow these vehicles to the wind. The vehicle like leaves will scatter them and they'll, be, they'll all experience the attraction differently. And we'll use that aquatopia system. Well, the fact was, I didn't realize that, the, that those vehicles were seen by a laser and you couldn't have walls. Nobody bothered to tell me that oh, wow. you'd have to have a yeah. slice at six feet through all of it for the laser to see. So we ended up having, you know, the ride group rose to the occasion and re-engineered it to work. So it did, it wasn't as existing as the, uh as the pitch made it sound, to be honest with (laughs) you, later on, they found out the, the, oh, there's mystery. It's an impossible burger. You know, it's an imposter. It's made of vegetables. It's not really what they said, you know? So, uh, (laughs) yeah, they got a bit of an impossible burger, but, uh, that's, that's the fun. We do the impossible and, and there's this ride. So like you said, Michael, now, what do you fill it with? And I, I tried to think, well, what would Walt Disney do? Well, Mary Poppins, was when Walt Disney took everything he ever learned and put it in one movie. You took every effect, everything, and put it in one thing. And it happened to you. And I'd always learned that rides, good rides happen to you, you know, and the story isn't what you learn. It's what you tell the person when you get off the ride. Guess what we did? We did this. So we went down a waterfall and then that happened and there was a burning down. And, you know, we went, did all this stuff. So, that's kind of what I thought. Let's go to the R and D group. They have this puffer cannon. They've got this. We were building this Twilight Zone ride that had a disappearing room with fiber optics in it, where you go in the tower and you don't know where you are. How do we take all this stuff, and maybe I, you know, maybe you can make up for this mystery meat ride system by doing a bunch of things that are invented <laughs> as the effects, and see how many of them we can stick around this ride system. And uh, have it relate to the story. So you're going to go backwards. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to you're going to be you know kidnapped. You're gonna, all these things. You're going to go backwards. Let's just exploit this ride system for everything it's worth, but make sure it relates to the story. And we're not going to even have a story like the Pooh movie. He's looking for honey. Mm-hmm. It's a real simple idea, and we don't need to get into it. He's looking for honey and you're gonna follow him even in his dreams he looks for honey and uh, he's just gonna wake up at the end and so will you and you'll be done. And you'll say right. well that was that was kind of cool, you know and uh, let's let let's let the magic do the magic well, let's not let's not get involved in too much dialogue here, like the silent movies. There's almost no dialogue other than Tigger saying something to you. It's all music and uh, that's it. We right. really keep it simple.
1: Well, it obviously worked because, I mean, that's still the attraction that the people rush to in the morning to uh, get their fast pass or whatever for that. You know, it's still the big draw 20 years on.
2: It, it is, you know, I, I know I know. there's new attractions there that are the Beauty and the Beast and so forth Have you know, it's about time, right? They're they've doing that. And of course, it uses that ride system. I'm very proud of the fact that in the concept studio the year i left we were pitching all these new things you could do this is like 1999 all these things you could do with it and that this is going to be the future once we open Pooh, this is the future can we start now coming up with ideas for this new platform of the future and you know we uh, it was the paul pressler era it was the disney development company running imagineering era the pendulum swing so i'm not saying things about Today's imaginary because things sure. have changed. But at that moment, little Eddie sato was kind of in the world of no. And you know, you kind of you kind of feel that. So I kind of hoped we were at the crest of a new era, but I'm glad 20 years later that uh that uh saner minds prevailed and did wonderful things with it. And that system came into its own, not because of me, but because of others that have taken it and used it. And I'm glad eventually that uh, it happened. The pendulum just had to swing toward John Lasseter and then kind of continuing through Bob Iger and investing in these things. And maybe the, the theme park wars, you know, helped it, but uh, I'm happy.
0: So that wraps up part one of an interview with Eddie Sato. We'll be back next week for part two, Michael. So much information, so many ideas.
1: Yeah, you can see why I was so excited to uh, bring Eddie Allen. Um, you know, I've known him for a while and he's always been just the best at you know, being willing to share information, share thoughts, you know, bounce ideas off of, uh, you know, always has something interesting to say. And so you know, everybody should check out his website Sadisstudios.com. And uh, see what he's been up to because he is a very busy guy. But yeah, I can't wait for part two. Hear what else we got
0: to say. So we will be back next week with that. But before we leave, we need to check in with Michael to see if we have any new Patreon subscribers. Michael, anybody new signed up? We do. We have a couple of new members. Uh, major
1: thanks to Ashley and to Brian for joining up. Uh, we are glad to have them. And we're looking forward to another month of shenanigans. With our Patreon pals, another live stream, now that we've uh, got that going. And uh, all sorts of fun coming up.
0: Yeah, so if you need to check that out, please do. Uh, it's patreon.com slash Progress City USA, and you can sign up there. You can also be in touch with us by emailing us at podcast at Progress And on Twitter, Michael's at Progress City USA. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford, so please be in touch. We love hearing from you. We appreciate all your support. Please, if you get a chance, rate and review us on your podcast platform. We always appreciate the feedback and reviews. So thanks for listening in. We will join you again soon for part two of Eddie Sato. Until then, take care, everybody.